So, what does Judaism say about? Where we discuss lots of challenging topics in life and in Judaism. I'm Rabbi Rick Fox. With me, as always, is the elusive Rabbi Mayer Beer. Today, we're going to discuss prophecy. That's right. Rabbi Beer, how you doing? Fantastic. So, what does Judaism say about prophets? Now, as a Wharton Business School graduate, I have to make the pun, but I'll skip it. You know, prophecy, probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of history, because what does it mean somebody talked with God? It's a little bit foreign for us, you know, who are, you know, living by the scale and measurements of what we call modern science, which is excellent. But this is an, an ancient idea that still applies to us today, and we have to understand what's going on. Yeah, sure. We'll uh, hopefully get to uh, the history and when the prophetic era ended, which is an important point to discuss. But I, I would like to start this discussion by making a point. Uh, prophecy seems like one of these like esoteric concepts or topics which doesn't seem to have much relevance to anyone. Yet, it is extremely relevant, philosophically. And what I mean by that is the following. Maimonides writes a list of 13 principles of Judaism. One of those principles is the concept of prophecy. There's a the popular Yigdal uh, prayer, which is a song based on these 13 principles. There's a, they're also written as these 13 animamans, I believes. Um, not to take away from the Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy, I believe, uh, series. Um, but in any case, there there is this list of basic concepts and other you know other codifiers have other lists of of you know basic beliefs Judaism some of them some of them have lists which are far shorter than Maimonides with three or four basic components which basically boil down to believing that there is a god that there is reward and punishment or or there's repercussions to our behavior and that there's a, a Torah which God gave to humanity which are the three basic almost universal principles of Judaism. Maimonides has this longer list of 13 principles. And one of them, which, which is prophecy, and the question is, you know, what, what, what does it mean to have 13 principles of Judaism? If, if a person would deny part of the Torah, then they are denying the basic existence of, of the body of Judaism. So what makes these 13 special? And uh, there, there's an answer given by uh, uh, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, which is, uh, the expression sounds better in Yiddish, but the, the, the English translation of it is basically, you know, if a person never heard of some of the laws of Shabbos or is not educated enough to be able to keep them, they're not, by definition, not a believing Jew. They just don't know about certain parts or, 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 or don't keep certain things out of a lack of, of background or ability to keep it. But if a person were to consider themselves a believing Jew, yet believe in the Trinity, they're by definition not Jewish. Right, I mean the whole J, 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 Jews for J business. is It's just not Judaism. Right. It's something else. Right. Amazing that they get to use that word. Uh, I guess it's not trademarked. <laughs> we should really, we're trademarking it. <laughs> should look into that. But Maimonides considers the belief in prophecy to be so fundamental that if you don't know about it, you're actually missing basic Judaism. Right. Which is like, it, which just shows you that there's something that is worth exploring, even though, as you mentioned, it is a, something that we have a hard time relating to because it's been thousands of years since there's been prophets, and the 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 you know what it is because we're so far removed from it is hard to understand. Absolutely, but Absolutely. we'll we'll try. And and I'll throw in something that that bothers me is like if prophecy went away, 
there must have been a good reason as well that somehow there's a benefit to me now in the year 2022 to not have access to profits. I'm sure it wasn't done to be mean. God isn't mean. So whatever the reason is that prophecy left the world, I mean, how many times have you heard from ourselves and from others, if only God would show me a sign or talk to me, then I would believe in you. Well, the answer is, well, no, you wouldn't, because the the Tanakh, the, the whole, you know, 24 books of prophets is full of people <laughs> being exposed to open miracles to prophets and yet failing very hard tests, uh, you know, or even very simple tests. So I'm sure it would have, it would be even more challenging to us today to have that. So there's, there's gotta be some also kindness happening today, which I want to figure out as to why this era no longer exists. Yeah, sure. These are, these are all important points. Hopefully we'll get to them in this discussion. So I, I would like to, uh, I, I guess we already started, but starting to go through some material, uh, the, uh, the Litzato, the Ramchal, in his book, Darach Hashem, The Way of God, gives a differentiation between something called Ruach HaKodesh, which is often translated as like divine inspiration, and full-blown prophecy. So there is this idea that, that people can access information that is something that is beyond their capability to know or, or you know, be given sort of like ideas or concepts put into their mind, um, which is not by definition what prophecy is. Prophecy is far beyond that. You know, what we would think to define as prophecy, kind of getting this like additional insight that is not natural, is not by definition what prophecy is. Prophecy is, is far beyond that in the sense that a prophet is somebody who is like, and I have a hard time describing this because I am not a prophet, is somebody who is connected to God in a way which is fully tangible, in a way which is leaves no room for doubt as to that connection. It's an absolutely clear connection. You know, for, so for instance, and this is an analogy which comes up in the prophetic discussions, if a person is dreaming and sees something in their dream, you, you, you can question the reality of that dream. You don't question reality. Prophecy is an experience which is so real, it is as real as your real existence. It is not like a mild hallucination or a vision the way we would understand visions. It is well, actually... They weren't in the desert, you know, tripping on special K or peyote. Right, right. not know, at all. Up, right, this is the opposite of that. This is actually the most lucid. I imagine you probably couldn't imbibe in wine during these experiences. I imagine that would probably affect, you know affect things to the negative because maybe you were drunk. These people are stone right. cold sober. Correct, and and you know I think we'll we'll do a follow up session just going through this in more detail. But just as a starting point to get into to get into this basic idea is an experience which is so profoundly clear and so absolute in its you know in its openness and its you know whatever the revelation of that prophecy is that it is a fully like conscious experience. Although it isn't an experience that you see with your eyes. And, and prophets were common. There were, I mean, we have 24 books of prophets, but there were millions yes. of prophets. So the Talmud writes that there were 48 male prophets and seven female prophets, which are recorded for historical purposes, which are found in the in the scripture, as you will, in the, in the in books the of the prophets. Scripture. <laughs> in the scripture. But the Talmud writes, and this is from uh, Tractate Megillah, uh, page 14, that there were Kiflaim Yotzi Mitzrayim, double the amount of people that left Egypt, so if there were 600,000 Jews approximately left Egypt, there were about 1.2 million prophets in the history of the prophetic era. So it was not that uncommon. And the majority of them were women. Um, possibly, yeah. There, there certainly was a, a, a strong connection that women had to this, yes. And although the, the historically important ones were more male than female, there were seven female prophets. Esther is one of them. Absolutely. And, and, and the ones that we're saying are recorded, it's there's some message there that is important for us in the year 2022. Yes, that's a, that, that right. prophecy itself was historically important permanently. 
And this gets us to some of the other roles that prophets played in the prophetic era. Nachmanides writes in his commentary to the Chumash that people in a time when you know, th- this supernatural era, so to speak, existed, which we'll describe in more detail, if they were sick, they were, you know, they're physically ill, if they had reason to believe that they were being punished because of sin, they would go to a prophet, the prophet would have the insight to tell them where they needed to change their behavior, and they could get cured. Now, just to make this point very clearly, you are absolutely not allowed to do this in an era where there aren't prophets. And there's a chapter in the Shulchan Aruch, the basic, you know, handbook, so to speak, of halacha, uh, on the laws of you know medicine, and if a person isn't feeling well, you absolutely must go to a doctor. We do not live in such an era. You don't go to the guy with the red strings and the super long beard. No, you don't. By the, you don't do that. Okay. Uh, you could also, but you need to go to the doctor, and you can't say, "Well, I've sinned, so therefore, if I repent, I will get better." No, we now, do not live in such an environment. Yeah, we we live in a much more we'll call it rationalist era, yeah. which there was a shift. Again, there was some shift that happened, probably around the times that the Greeks came in and sure. took over. Yeah, that's that's the, that's precisely it, yeah. Connected to the Greek exile, there's something there where the intellect sort of, you know, rides over that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to this in, in, in more detail in a couple of minutes, but I'd like to make a couple other points uh, about the roles of prophets. The Vilna Gon writes in his commentary to Mishlei that people seeking to find their personal mission in this world would go to a prophet, so to speak, who had this, like, super therapy ability to help people find their unique role in this world. They were like godly career counselors. Right. They could help you read your, like, you know, your trunas anefesh, as it is in Hebrew, like your, the, 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 like the core of your spirit and help you find your place in life. So they had these abilities that weren't necessarily for divining the future. And that's only a small component of prophecy. Prophets would sometimes, as you read the books of the prophets, would be given missions. They would be given uh, specific tasks to do. But that was just a small component of the prophetic era. Nachmanides also writes that we find in the Chumash, uh, the Jewish people getting counted by Moshe. And each Jew would go in front of Moshe. And Nachmanides writes that one of the reasons for this is Moshe, who's called the father of the prophets, would bless them. And he would interact with them personally. And that would have some sort of positive spiritual effect on each person going in front of him. Uh, the uh, Rav Shimon Schwab has a, has a really great book on tefillah, on prayer. And he writes... Uh, this is, uh, you know, we're kind of, we keep leading up to this, this historic switchover when the prophetic era ended, but the Shimona Esri, the basic textbook of prayer, was written when the prophetic era came to a close, and he theorizes that during an era of prophecy, even people that weren't full-blown prophets had the ability to pray in a way which we can't do. They could each author their own text, and therefore didn't need a set text. When the prophetic era came to a close, the men of the Great Assembly, which included the last prophets of you know, of history, wrote this text called the Shemona Esrei, the Amidah, the the, uh, the silent prayer, because the prophetic ability was going to be removed from the Jewish people, and therefore they wouldn't, or mo- many people or most people would not have the ability to correctly author their own prayers. Right, and there, and 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 that's a one of the answers to. Why, what's the benefit of having a, a closed prayer? Why can't I say what your answer is? Well, you, you can say what you want and you should also, but these are powerful words crafted with, with certain meanings that we would otherwise not craft ourselves that help us tap into what was lost when the, prophet, when the prophets left the world. Yeah, that's, that's precisely it. And if a person were to put the time into studying the text of the Shemona Esrei, I mean, there's, there's, there's enough in it that you can understand that will blow your mind, uh, that will give you a feel of how deep it is. Right. And, you know, obviously, if you're praying to God, you want to have a super powerful text. And as you mentioned, including your own personal, you know, 
supplications or additions is not only acceptable, it's recommended, but the core text you want to have a really powerful one. So I think time to stop uh, side-skirting the issue. But the uh, get, getting to this, when did the prophetic era end? So the Talmud has a story. The Talmud says that the sages, and this is about 2,500 years ago, at the end of the era of the first temple, the exact date isn't, isn't precisely clear, but at some point around the story of Purim, this is between the first and the second temple eras, it was a 70-year exile between the two, the Talmud says that the, a pro, that the leading rabbis of the generation looked around and saw the desire for idolatry, which is something we're not familiar with either. There was a tangible desire for spiritual experiences that were improper, which we call the Yitzra Davodazara, the desire to worship idols or worship foreign beliefs. So there wasn't just theological and philosophical. There was this actual desire to do so. I think you see that in a minor aspect of that in today's sports fans occasionally. You know, there are certain people who feel, just to get an idea what this feeling might have been like, that, that uncontrollable urge to, to, um, to, you know, to, to gamble, or the uncontrollable urge to go watch that game, even though, whatever it is, that this was a, an uncontrollable urge that stemmed from the desire to connect something spiritually that was not God, that was not Judaism. And that urge is gone. Right. So how did, how did it leave? So these rabbis got together and they said, and I'm quoting from the Talmud in San, Tractate Sanhedrin, uh, page 64a, uh, they said this destroyed our temple, uh, it, it, it got many of our righteous killed, it got us exiled, this is in that period of, of the Babylonian exile, and it's still dancing amongst, amongst us, let us pray to get it removed. And they, you know, whatever it was, they, they, and, and they said that, you know, we were only given it this urge to overcome and, you know, be rewarded and develop from, from, from overcoming it. We're not being successful. So they, they prayed for three days, they fasted, and a tablet came out of heaven which said MS, truth, meaning that your, your, your desire to remove this force from the world is correct. And that's, at that instant, it, it, it left. And a fiery uh, lion, or the, this image of a fiery lion, left the place of the temple demonstrating that some sort of spiritual force had, had been removed from the world. So to, now what does this have to do with prophecy? Right, so there, there has to be, you know, the forces of good and evil have to be in perfect balance. Exactly. You know? So Rav Tzadok writes, this point that you just raised, that prophecy was a force in the world. And as we mentioned, it wasn't just a force limited to a small amount of people, and, even, and it spread beyond those that were considered full-blown prophets. It had an effect on the entire world. And if you're going to have this tangible spiritual element in the world, you need to have something opposing it to create a dynamic where you have free will. So what the sages who prayed to remove the desire for idolatry were essentially de-spiritually, desensitizing the world to certain spiritual experiences. And the world become more logical and more rational and more scientific. Less feeling, less emotion, less, less beyond. Right. And, and it wasn't, you know, the, the, the description of this era, which is once again something which we don't, we, we, we haven't lived in it, so it's difficult to describe, wasn't just like, you know, we had certain feelings. These were experiences that people were capable of, have, of having, which we don't have. It's like it's like trying to describe, I remember seeing this description was, was like trying to, telling somebody who grew up in like a, a teetotaler society and who has never tasted alcohol what good wine tastes like. It's kind of sour, it's kind of sweet, it's kind of strong, it's kind of vinegary. Like, you have to 
experience understand it fully. And like, could you describe what it is to be drunk to somebody who's never who's never had a drink? Certainly not. You can't. No, not that prophecy it's is hard. Is, describing is, it to sober people who are drinking. <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, I've never you know used strong drugs. Right, uh, at least not, that I'll admit publicly. But um, I'd imagine it'd be something similar. Like, what does an acid trip feel like? I don't know. Right. So you know there. We can describe it and use terminology because, as we mentioned, it's important to have a basic idea of this. But to really understand it personally is something that's difficult. But in any case, so they, they shift over the whole fabric of really the world of, of being human to this more tangibly spiritual era, to a more logical, rational era, uh, if you will. And the, the, uh, there are those, and, I, and I'm quoting a, an essay from Rav Yonis and Ibishitz, who don't view this as necessarily a bad thing. This is a really interesting point. He says, the Talmud writes in Tractate Yuma that Esther, which is the same era as this point, was Sofkal Anisim, was the end of the era of, of open miracles. And the Gemara says it's like the break of dawn, the analogy the Gemara you know, brings for this. And the question is, if it's the end of era of miracle, the end of the era of miracles, shouldn't the sunset be a better description than dawn? Dawn is the rise of, an, of, an, of light rather than darkness. So he writes something really interesting. He says that the reason why this era had to exist in humanity and then it was able to be, so to speak, switched out was because humanity had to be introduced to this idea of God. And what God and what that means is the idea that you can recognize that there is a, a an entity or a being or whatever you want to describe God as being something which controls the world. And it, that is such a difficult concept for humanity to really ingrain itself with that it was necessary to have a long period in the existence of human beings where miracles would be open. Because there is this, there is this time period where tangible spirituality was around, hu humanity was able to get in touch with these ideas and then take them to the ideal state, which is people living in a rational scientific form, but still being able to get in touch with these ideas. Wow. So this is this 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 era was necessary for humanity to develop into itself. But in essence, he really seems to describe the era we're living in as almost being more superior to that era because so much of humanity is in touch with godly ideas without having access to this period of time. Like we've moved beyond it. And 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 that's amazing. And and I would say it's almost axiomatic. It needs to be that way because again, we are all human beings, and we all have to have free will, and we do have to we we all have to have our experiences of coming closer to God, and uh, and 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 God and 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 our Jewish leaders, let's call it together, would never do something that would be let's call it damaging or whatever it is to the Jewish people. You know, anybody who wants to read this in depth, there's a great book by Rabbi Akiva Tatz called As Dawn Ends the Night, quoting this exact phrase, which goes through these th this era and how it shifts over in, in tremendous detail. I highly recommend anybody that wants to read more about this, uh, check out that book as we continue here in, uh, in, in our discussion. Take a look. <laughs> uh, in any case, getting on to another question which you raised, which is that how is this relevant to us? So the Talmud writes uh, in Tractate Bava Basra, this is on page 12, that even though prophecy was taken away from the prophets, it still exists by the Chachamim, by the scholars, by the wise people. Now this does not mean to say that scholars or people who achieve intellectually great heights are seeing the future. It doesn't mean that. But there is this like force that a person can tap into through incredible and diligent work and achieve intellectual feats 
which are beyond really the natural capacity of people. Uh, and this idea is, is, is raised that there are scholars that are so like above and beyond what is like doable and are, are like, it's incredible they've achieved. Now that in a sense is getting, getting in touch with the prophetic, with, with the prophetic, you know, energy or, or force, which to some extent still exists in the world. The, um, the, the idea that somebody could, could know so much and have such insight and, and, and such, you know, penetrating abilities of understanding is something which which seems to go beyond the natural capacity of the human mind, right? But, well, but exists. What comes to mind immediately is like Rashi. I don't know if this is discussed, you know. But for me, when you say somebody of capacity that just doesn't make sense, you know, the father of all commentators, Rashi, writing in the year one thousand, which is hundreds of years after the era of prophecy, you know, comes to a close. What he was able to do in what we call the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, even though life was terrible, then Rashi was able to have that kind of a, 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 a mass uh, ability to comment on literally everything. And we can't even understand Chumash, Tanakh, all these things without Rashi. It's pretty remarkable. Would he be someone that would fit into that category? Uh, if you say so. No, I, I don't I'm mean asking. that as, as an insult. Yeah, I mean, if, if you see that in Rashi, you know, yeah. That, that that would be that would be perfectly acceptable I, I, I to say. How did he know? How did he know to write that? How did he accomplish this much? Uh, you say it. Just is what I felt in my heart. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I have seen you know works from rabbis, and this is you know Talmudic studies is is my field <laughs> that just seem to blow the mind. And this is not coming from you know a lack of exposure to these things. And but, it's just let me like be clear, I didn't say Rashi's a prophet. I'm saying that your idea of what you're saying to expand beyond yourself and connect in a way to God that is so powerful and so profound, the amount of work a person can get done, considering right. what, what in, we can in, accomplish. In, exactly, in a lifetime, is just like it's beyond. Right. And it's like people have the ability, and as we'll hopefully discuss, the prophetic experience is not an accident. It's something which takes you know hard work, and because we live in this rational intellectual era, there are people that can you know, focus and be so hyper-rational intellectual that they can, like, go beyond the natural capacity of, of what seems to be achievable. And as you mentioned before, this this coincides with the era of the Greeks. So the, the Talmud writes that there was a day which at one point in history was observed as a minor holiday, which was the day when Shimon, the righteous, met Alexandrus Mukhtan. Alexandrus Mukhtan is also known as Alexander of... Alexander the Great, Alexander, Alexander Macedonia. There you go. Um... Just in Hebrew, Macedonia is Mukhtun. Uh, and the story is that, that Alexander wanted to conquer Jerusalem and he meets this incredible personality and he doesn't. You know, he's so impressed with Shemana Tzadik, Shemana the Righteous, that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't end up destroying Jerusalem. The details of the story aren't, aren't particularly pertinent to us, but the, the, there's a Brisa, which is a Mishnaic era text. This is in the early parts of the Talmud, which writes that that was a shift. That first interaction between the Jews and the Greeks was the really the end of the prophetic era. The prophet Malachi passed away at that time. Malachi was the last of the prophets. And now the Greeks are the dominant, so to speak, other force in the world. The Greeks represent intellect and wisdom. You know, all this profound philosophy that the and that's Greeks not and that's not an accident. That's all. That's all. It's all part and parcel. It's not. It's not serendipitous. It's. It's. It's designed that way. You know, sort of the way that history needed to play out from from God's perspective, this this force comes in the world and to, to close this vacuum, right? So, to speak. so now the new balance or the new difficulties 
are not in what kind of spiritual experiences I'm going to have, positive or negative ones, but is how am I going to use my intellect? Am I going to use it for, you know, spiritually healthy pursuits or am I going to do other things with it? So, you know, it, what's also interesting is that, is that Alexander is not a bad person. I mean, he has these interactions and he's not vilified. But there's this new force in the world and there are, in the story of Hanukkah, which is a little while later, there are Greeks which are going to directly oppose the wisdom of Judaism and fight that. But that's not coming from Alexander. Alexander is actually becomes a Jewish name because of his interactions with the Jewish yes. people. You'll meet people whose names are Alexander. That is their Jewish name. Correct. And, and the Talmud says that the, uh, the way that they were demonstrating their loyalty to Alexander is they would name their children after him. But not out of fear, out of gratitude and love, I think, for his interaction with the Jewish people. Right, so this interaction isn't a, isn't necessarily a bad one. Meaning to say that we don't we don't you know we don't have to say that Greek, you know what the Greeks represent is inherently bad. It's just it's a new dynamic, which has both good and bad in it. And as a result, and this is an interesting point, the uh, the the um, focus on Torah study shifted as well, because the prophetic era came to a close, and now the world is in a more intellectual, rational state the need for a greater in other words always a strong intellectual you know set of people studying torah but that had to be that had to be emphasized further because of this new dynamic in the world and in fact the beginning of the book of avos the teachings of the fathers starts with a statement from the anche kanasagdola it launches with that they're the first group of rabbis in this era and they teach three things number one is that you should be masunim badin you should be careful in judgment they're emphasizing really analyzing cases carefully Hamidu uh, Talmidim Harbe have many students because it is not enough that there is an intellectual core that it needs to be more widespread. Like we need to really emphasize this, um, you know, this to, to the masses, this idea of, of connecting more to intellect. And thirdly, Asusiyag uh, the Torah, make fences for the Torah, be more active in observance, in the intellectual part of the observance. You know, is this going to go off? Do we need to kind of make a fence over here? Do we need like things are becoming much more gray? There's 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 less direct connection and direct communication, where things are set up for us to be much more careful and diligent and 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 a lot of what we discussed about rabbinic authority is coming out of this era because the era of prophecy, which was let's call it just clear communication, is ceasing to exist. Correct. So we're now you know this is the start of the era we live in, which is a much more intellectual era. It doesn't mean that there isn't you know, experiential uh, spirituality in this world, but it isn't at all what it was like then. And this shift in history is very important for us to remember. And also relevant for us, as we mentioned before, because the ability to achieve things beyond one's, you know, so to speak, natural abilities or, or the abilities he thinks he has is something that one can go beyond. And one can push the limits of himself further than what he thinks is possible by putting his all into it which is, which is like a lesson we can take out of prophecy and really gives us the respect that we have for the greatest Torah scholars that have lived throughout history. Right, and, and, and so we're seeing that prophecy is not magic, it's not heebie-jeebies, it's not something that, that comes out of there, it's something that is, is born out of, out of a, a really powerful emotional and spiritual experience that really we, we can understand ourselves. And the prophets are not people that were um, doing any kind of bizarre or biz strange activity or using any kinds of, 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 of other uh, uh, 
substances to achieve this. These are people who worked on themselves to, to be able to c- become a vessel to help the Jewish people in that era know who they were, what their missions were going to be. This is not just someone who comes to rebuke the Jewish people, but God said it's not what they were. And there were millions of them, even though we only have the 48 men and seven women prophets that came down. This was an era that had millions of people reaching this, reaching this area, which was then taken apart and, and sort of prayed by the, by the great people of that time to, to, to leave because the risk of prophecy was greater than reward then, leaving us with this era open up for where our intellect becomes what is much more, let's call the emphasis on Judaism, much much more intellectual, that happened at this point. And that's sort of the introduction, how we understand prophecy and where it's coming from, where it's going. All right. And we'll have to do a couple more segments on this to uh, try to do this issue justice. It's a complicated issue. 